You probably only think about security software when it's too late and you already have a virus. Well, big companies can't take that risk, and many of them turn to McAfee for protection. Today, we talk to Laura Thielen, senior UX designer in their enterprise UX group, about how they create software that satisfies serious security experts and normal folks, too. This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products in lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out more at NineLabs.com. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Design Driven. I'm super excited today to talk to Laura Thielen. She is uh, working at McAfee. Did I say it right? Uh, McAfee, actually. Yeah, McAfee. So we had that debate a little bit before we got on the show. So if you um, have the debate about whether it's McAfee or McAfee, now we know. So, Laura, welcome to the show. Um, tell everybody about what you're doing there, what you're excited about, and, and actually how you got there in the first place. Sure. Um, hi. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. So I ended up joining uh, McAfee as a senior UX designer about a year and a half ago. I had started out as at Intel. Um, Intel had acquired McAfee several years back and then ended up deciding to um, unacquire them. <laughs> Uh, so the um, spinoff happened about a year ago, so McAfee is now back to being its own independent company. Uh, so I'm part of a, a pretty decent-sized UX team on uh, the enterprise side. So we have two different groups. We have the uh, enterprise uh, side, and then we have the consumer side. And so on the enterprise side, what our focus is is designing uh, enterprise security products. So by enterprise, I mean um, think Fortune 500, um, larger or smaller companies, uh, basically, any um, corporate uh, entity who has um, anywhere from probably 10,000 to 50,000 end nodes that they support. So their security team would be managing all of the security products for those uh, those laptops or desktops or servers. And so our uh, UX group supports that um, those those types of companies. Wow, that's a that's a lot of nodes to to think about. So, what kind of things, um, use cases, or tasks are people typically trying to accomplish? Like, what's a, a typical use case for your product? Also, in a nutshell, it's our the goal of all of our products is to help security administrators in a company keep their environment safe and secure, and basically up and running smoothly. Uh, we're also trying to give them the ability to manage their environment and make any adjustments to policies or settings that affect their users. Uh, we want to make sure that our software is catching any sort of malware or viruses before it gets into the environment and alerting the administrator when there's trends, like if there's a big attack going on. I'm sure you you and your listeners are probably familiar with the WannaCry virus that was big oh, yeah. in the news a few weeks back. Um, so our, our the goal of the majority goal of our software is to detect and protect uh, the, you know, all of the endpoints in in an environment. And yes. so the work I sp- oh sorry go ahead. I was just gonna say that's kind of interesting because um, on one hand you've got security experts administrators who are in charge of you know, all of these machines, um, and they're certainly somebody that you're designing for. But then you've also uh, you also have the end user who might not be that sophisticated and really understand the threat or um, the risks that that uh, that they have by just doing simple things like checking their email. So, how do you balance the um, 
designing for those two really, really distinctly different groups? So that's a that's a great question. The the user that we're primarily designing for is the 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 IT security person. It's generally not the end user who is using the lap the laptop or the workstation. So ideally, that person shouldn't have to interact with our software at all. Um, so they can focus on doing their jobs. And if they're having to interact with our software or even their their work performance is impacted by it, we've basically failed. Security just isn't something that you typically would leave up to the end user. And so our our user is really the security professional. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. So it sounds like the goal is kind of to make the software and, and the security piece of, of what you're doing transparent to the end user and make it very powerful for the administrator. Yeah, exactly. So the, the big role of our software is to help the the security professional manage the the security software and settings in their environment so they can monitor what's going on and adjust any sort of um, any settings or policy that may be necessary for particular needs in their environment. So if they have different types of users and really to just give them a big picture of what's going on in their environment so they can make sure that everything is running swimmingly. Yeah, that's uh, super fascinating because it's, it's an ever-changing world, right? So you've got to stay on top of not just um, all the threats that are out there, but then how do you communicate that in a way that that is effective for, for those designers? Yeah, I think the, the challenge, too, with the, the uh, security administrators that we design for is that they're all incredibly computer savvy. Um, they are very sophisticated users, and a lot of them have been using uh, legacy versions of our products for many years. And so they consider their, themselves almost experts in our products. So their, expect, their expectations are therefore really high. Yeah, um, and they're very, they're very sophisticated computer users, so they have a really specific vocabulary they use. They, they don't tolerate when things don't work very well. They're very vocal about it, which has actually been really great for the UX team is that we have a lot of very vocal, passionate, engaged customers who love to talk to us. Yeah, and that's kind of a UX designer's dream, right, is to have uh, users that actually volunteer feedback. Yeah, we have quite an engaged group of customers that we talk to very regularly, I think the downside of that is that they're not necessarily representative of everyone of our entire customer base, but I think it, it, it's really helpful to talk with them and get their feedback and then for them to see us actually integrating their their feedback and their input into our products. And I think it really, you know, it, it, it helps them, you know, feel like they're being listened to and actually seeing our products evolve like with their feedback, I think is really great for both sides. Yeah, absolutely. So can you shed some light on some of the process around how you gather that feedback? Um, I would imagine it's somewhat structured. And, and how do you take somebody who maybe came from a design background into a highly technical discipline and help them develop empathy around um, who they're designing for? So that's been all about talking to our customers. So we have, our group is about, uh, there's about 15 of us total and we've got Right now, I think we have four user researchers, and we, uh, the designers, we keep them very busy. So we've um, we've got this dedicated research group that they, they have a, a lot of different methodologies they'll utilize, but they mostly do one-on-one -on -one interviews and um, feedback sessions. So anytime we're working on developing or redesigning a new area, we will engage our research team, and they'll actually go out and get a group of usually probably eight, eight or ten is the number we typically try to talk to uh, customers. 
And we start with some of the um, internal customers because we actually have a, a pretty big group at McAfee that are, you know, some of our support um, folks who are willing to talk to us. We'll do a pilot study with them because they ha actually talk to customers quite a bit and we'll have a lot of insights into, you know, not only the problem we're trying to figure out by using research, but they'll help us structure the study in a way that we're asking questions that make sense to the customer. So they kind of help us with their expertise. Um, and then when we do these one-on-one -on -one research sessions, they're typically, uh, we'll, we'll show them a maybe a concept that we're working on and we'll compare that against the, the current state or even, we even try to do some multivariate testing once in a while and and really look at it from a, an analytical perspective. Like, are we are we making things better for them? Are we improving their experience? Sure, so how and do then, you measure that? I mean. First, you have to figure out what to measure, but then how do you measure if they're making the experience better? So we're actually, uh, we've been using uh, the net promoter score measurement for almost all of our products. That's something that McAfee's recently adopted. At first, I was not a big fan of NPS because I think, you know, as many UX designers have probably experienced, it's it can be limiting in terms of what feedback and how actionable it is. Uh, sometimes you'll get an NPS score and it just doesn't tell you the whole picture. But the way sure. we're using that is that we actually, we're, we're, we're using it to help prioritize some of the major issues and problems that we're tackling, which I think is very cool. Uh, we actually have a dedicated group that goes through all of the, the comments. Some of them can be pretty scathing sometimes, but we, they'll go through the comments and help us prioritize what we are addressing. But the way we use it in testing uh, if we're showing something new and improved against the current or the the previous experience, we'll ask the the NPS question: Would you recommend this based on this based on just your experience with this particular part of the product? Would you recommend this to a friend or colleague? It's a little forced sometimes, but it actually gives us something measurable that we can compare in user research. So it it helps give us a number there. Yeah, which and, I think is pretty cool. Right, and some measurement is typically better than no measurement. Although, um, you know, the, there's longstanding debate about how to collect data and and whether or not it becomes useful. So it's interesting to hear that um, you're following a pattern that we're starting to see a lot in some of these large companies, where they're going to their internal support systems and support teams as a proxy to figure out what some of the biggest challenges are for the user base and then going to those users and testing whether or not the solutions are actually ineffective um, for helping them solve their problem. Yeah, that's exactly what it does. And helping engage our support team ensures that we have a good pipeline of uh, customers to talk to. And it, I think it helps them feel like they're heard and that they're, the issues that they're dealing with every day with frustrated customers on the phone that they're, you know, being addressed and prioritized by, by the product teams. Yeah, which brings up another um, interesting point. Um, I, I, somebody I was talking to in the last season of the podcast, I believe it was Nate over at LinkedIn, was saying that one of the kind of um, unintended uh, benefits to using a stronger, I'm going to more human-centered design process was that it built morale across the team. And because more people felt like they participated in the solution and they were being heard across the entire organization. Have you seen something similar? Yeah, I think that's definitely a shift that's happening. And, you know, in the in the course of the work, you know, McAfee is a pretty large organization and there's so many 
there's so many different individuals and teams involved in almost every aspect. And so I think the more that you engage with more of your partners across the organization, uh, it, it, it not only helps kind of evangelize the user experience process and our team, but we also, you know, start to get to know what some of these internal challenges are. Because I think we're still coming from the fact that we're quite a, a siloed organization, which is something that I'm sure many, many folks deal with. Um, but I think the more connections we make and the more we understand that, you know, who to reach out to for what, I think that's helped everyone, you know, do their work a little bit more efficiently. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that's pretty consistent with what we've seen in other organizations. Can you talk a little bit maybe about um, some of the shift that you've seen in the product or in the process of creating the product where you saw an unexpected um, benefit or you saw some um, something improve that you didn't necessarily expect to improve that was just kind of a byproduct of using a better process? Well, I think just talking to customers firsthand gives us so much insight into coming up with really innovative solutions for things that we may not have thought of. Because I think the, you know, just the the process of going through uh, user research, uh, it can be a little time consuming, but I try to sit in on every every single session that I can. Because you hear customers come up with an idea and you may have never thought of the, about that before, but it ends up that, that no one else may have mentioned that particular way to solve something, but it ends up being something that can benefit all customers. And so getting those little uh, insights is has been fantastic, I think, at least for my work, and helping you know really positively impact the work in general. And we've also really utilized our, our UX process, and I think what we're hearing from research the number one thing is that our, many of our workflows are disconnected and customers have to go to all these different places just to accomplish a single task. And I think the UX process and what we've done in a very short time, because our group is fairly young, I think we're about, um, you know, in our current form, we're about two years old. Um, the, the work that we've been doing with research has really revealed that our workflows were broken. And so we're now trying to make more contextual workflows where the user would have everything they need to do right in context without having to jump around to different places in the application. And that's that's directly attributed to um, just input we've gotten from doing our research. And I think that's fantastic because it's something that may not have been revealed when we had just, you know, maybe a couple different engineers or developers working on a a, a product. That's something that I think in the past, because we're designing for this particular, you know, IT administrator or security administrator, in the past engineering designed a lot of our interfaces. And I think they just, it's come to, it's been revealed over time that that just isn't working. You really need somebody who's got more of a user-centered design focus and can go through the proper steps to, to make the right experience to support the user with where they are in their workflow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. I'm, I'm glad you're talking about research because I was curious and security is a really fascinating and can be a pretty opaque world. So how, how are you gaining more knowledge about that, that entire space, about kind of the security ecosystem and, and the types of things that you need to pay attention to and the types of things that are important to your users? So this was a huge challenge for me when I joined the team. Uh, I had come from a, you know, I've, I've worked on a lot of for a lot of different types of customers 
and industries in the back and my background, but the 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 sophistication of our users and you know knowing about the the IT and security space was a huge challenge. So I I've picked up just quite a lot from working on our products and listening to customers and working with my you know just my my partners in product management and engineering, but that still wasn't enough for me. So what I'm actually in the process of doing, um, there's a certification. It's it's actually a fairly um, intense IT security uh, credential called the uh, CISSP. It's the Certifica- Certified Information Systems and Security Professional. I actually took a course in that. Yeah, it sure is. But I'm planning on actually taking that test. I've been studying for it. I took a course and it was hugely beneficial in just explaining some of the fundamental concepts of like networking and, you know, I, I, I can now draw how a firewall works um, and just getting some of that vocabulary has been critical. I've never had, um, I've never worked for anyone in, you know, of all the different types of industries I've worked for in the past, I've never had that desire to learn more just so I could really empathize with the customer that we're designing for. And I think this was just, it was such a leap from my background. I didn't have a technical background, but now I feel, now that I've started to delve into this, I feel a lot more confident and can really understand what the products are doing and not so much, you know, it's one thing to understand what your user wants to do, but it's a whole nother level to understand what the product is actually doing and how, how, how it all works together as a system. Yeah, that's a you know taking kind of a customer empathy to a whole new level is actually really studying their world and understanding their world kind of on the same terms that they do at least at least to an extent. Yeah, and I think it's something that you you get a little bit of that just from talking to customers, but you're not you're still not in their world. You're not sitting next to them and right. seeing what they're dealing with on a daily basis or what they care about or what they're you know what keeps them awake at night. Yeah, and or, it's not. I, I was say, or or really kind of understanding the kind of the perspective that they come from when they're starting to think about how they're going to use the product because you know their training is entirely different from the type of training that you know a typical designer would 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 uh, come from. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned a little bit about your background. Um, how did you get to where you are, like your career path, and and um, what? gave you ultimately the decision to, to kind of work in security? Well, uh, so I started out as a visual designer. And like many, I got into web design in the late 90s and just kind of ended up in the agency world because I think that's where a lot of people end up. Uh, there was a lot of hiring going on at that time. Um, and and I, I ended up uh, working for a nonprofit um, shortly after and had a really difficult design challenge where I, I started Googling something that I didn't quite understand, and it turns out what I was looking for was actually called faceted navigation, and it, it kind of blew my mind where I started doing all this reading, and then you know later that day, I ended up making the decision, I'm going to go to grad school for UX and information architecture, and it was sort of, it just blew my mind that it was this entire discipline out there, and this was in the early 2000s, um, so this is when it was a fairly young discipline and there weren't a lot of programs so it wasn't very it wasn't very widely known but I ended up getting my master's in uh, human computer interaction Uh, I you know kind of continued in the agency and consulting world um, for quite a while and then I ended up deciding I wanted to move across the country from Chicago to the 
Pacific Northwest. So I, I took that as an opportunity to get out of the agency world because it just wasn't really giving me what I, what I wanted. Yeah, so, so that's interesting. I can understand moving from Chicago to the Pacific Northwest. I, that I understand. I've been in Chicago. My wife's from Chicago. It's a very cold, harsh winter, so I can <laughs> understand wanting to escape that. But you know, leaving the agency world where you've got a lot of um, variety and solving different types of challenges for different types of clients— as a UX designer, you know, at least for me, that seems like you know the sweet spot where you want to be. So ultimately, what led to that decision to go in-house? So I think it, it was great for a long time, and I got a ton of experience out of, out of working in the agency and consulting world. Uh, I learned a lot from a lot of very creative people. But I think I, I got personally frustrated um, at some point. Because I, I would always be handed a project like, here, you're going to make a thing. You're going to make an app or a website. And when you're told you're making a thing and what that thing is, you don't necessarily have a lot of say, especially if that's may, maybe not the right thing to make. And oftentimes we get our work very well defined for us by um, account managers and strategy folks. But if you don't have a lot of say in it, it's kind of, you know hard to be more personally invested in the work. And then the project is over and you're on the next thing. So it's not really ever knowing in a lot of cases if that helped the client solve their problems. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I think going in-house has really helped, helped me be more part of a longer-term strategy. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you can feel more invested in the product that you're working on because you get to see it kind of all the way through the process from the initial customer request all the way through through shipping it out and, and seeing people use it and measuring those results. Yeah, it's more of a long-term um, engagement that you have with it because I think you know, you're know you able to actually tackle much bigger problems. And the problems almost, I found that they reveal themselves. We are doing a lot of, we're getting a lot of uh, projects prioritized from our um, the net promoter score um, analysis we've been doing, but I think a lot of my pro projects are kind of focused around some of the same problems or similar problems. And the other thing, too, to recognize is that not all of them are UX problems. They they come from other parts of the organization, and you know they may manifest themselves in a poor user experience, but you're actually able to work with those other partners, I think, a little bit more to really fix some of the, get to the root of what the problem that you're solving is. And so I think being part of that multidisciplinary approach to address really complex problems is one of the unique things I've gotten out of my in-house experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you end up finding like organizational issues or, you know, other kind of administrative problems that end up as you said, kind of manifesting themselves as an experience issue that are actually rooted in something completely different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, would you mind talking a little bit about your process? Um, how do you, uh, we talked a little bit about the research side and going and getting, um, understanding what problems need to be solved. So what happens after that? Are you using some form of like prototyping and um, are you testing those prototypes or are you going straight through to development? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we do have a, um, a defined process and that tends to work very well for more of the larger scale, like newer um, products. So what we do is we identify the major customer problems. We work with our partners in the uh, product management group and we 
uh, try to do whatever, you know, use whatever we can from research to help inform that. So we identify what those major, um, we call them epics, and then we design workflows and storyboards to support those. And that basically at every stage, we, we try to validate those with uh, customer research and, or, or at least internal research, because we do have a lot of expertise in-house, especially to, you know, from our support group that works with customers every day. Um, we, we try to then flesh out the details and work very close, closely with development to make sure that we've got all the different scenarios covered. Um, and I think one of the challenges in, in an organization of the size of McAfee is that we've got a lot of separate and different uh, development teams uh, that are working on a lot of different things. So I think I support up to about 10 teams with the work that I do. I, just the, you know, on my project roster, it's all, 10 separate development teams. And they're all working in more of an agile process, which is really challenging because you know, if I'm sure anyone who's who works in agile and and does that and does it well or feel it like it goes well, it's it works a lot better when everyone's um, working closely together and you as the UX person are basically embedded in the team. Um, but because of the sheer number of teams we support, you can't really do that. So what right. we try to do is stay one step ahead and you know know what they're going to be working on in the next sprint. But I think we uh, it's a, we still have a lot of work to do to align our process with that development process. But I think th- those are some of the organizational discussions that are are happening um, now that we're you know the new McAfee and we're apart from Intel. Uh, we have the opportunity to really rethink some of our processes and how they work. I think our UX process is great, but we need to do a better job of working with um, the you know development teams to align our processes closer. Sure. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of big organizations have, especially if they came from like a more traditional waterfall style process where everybody's in a silo and everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And there's not a lot of cross-functional or cross-team communication as you start to see a lot of that. So it's it's good to hear that um, the organization is starting to recognize that and, and move kind of towards the right direction. Um, what do you see as some of the tools that are helping facilitate some of that discussion, even if it's like a piece of software or just processes or maybe a book you've read that have helped kind of um, fuel that and push the organization in the right direction? Well, we're working, we're using, we're using uh, Sketch and Envision, and Envision is actually helping us collaborate a lot better uh, with our development partners. Uh, we're using, um, we're also using Zeppelin, and so, and we have a living style guide and those things, you know, once we get down to the design details where something's actually being built, uh, we can work directly with our development partners to go and get the specs for a particular element or pattern. Um, we can do a lot more easier collaboration with those tools. Uh, and we try to use prototyping tools like Envision where uh, partners can comment on, partners and stakeholders can make comments right on the, on the screens themselves. Um, organizationally, we're moving toward using uh, Jira. Uh, I think it remains to be seen how how we're going to be using that overall and what teams will be part of that. Um, but I'm hoping that the UX will be a bigger part of that, so we can you know work a lot more closely with our with our um, our development teams to make sure that we're getting getting them what they need and. You know, making sure that we're staying on top of the the project because things move 
pretty quickly and it's a lot to manage when you're working with so many different engineering teams. Yeah. And it seems that, uh, you know, like that pace of, of development is, um, is just accelerating, right? As tools get better and as people figure out better ways to communicate, like things are just moving faster and faster. Um, and we see that, um, in a lot of the companies that we work with and, and, uh, incidentally, when we had um, the guys from Envision on the show earlier this season, the, you know, they were talking about how they've seen some of the kind of rapid change within organizations when they go in and show people how, how to use tools like Envision to, to really accelerate that process. So it's, it's good to hear that it's working for you too. Yeah. And I think that it's good because we're able to work a lot faster and collaborate more easily, but I also think the expectations have gone up on the fidelity of the designs that we're creating. And instead of uh, spending a lot of time creating a lot of different wireframe drafts, we're really going right to um, the almost a more polished-looking design in many cases because we have such a well-established design system and we have all these tools. And I think that can be personally challenging because sometimes you present the work and it looks like it's finished and it looks like it's done. Um, and so it's something that, you know, I think our, our expectations of our stakeholders have, has, have only gone up since we've started working this way, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it can be a lot of pressure. Yeah, of course. And since you're using tools like, you know, living design system and, and style guides and all of that, you know, it keeps things flexible and moving quickly enough. I'm, I'm curious, like, when you are taking something that's still maybe in the prototype phase, but it, it could be an Envision and it looks like a high fidelity, usable piece of software, if you take that upstream to stakeholders who might not be as familiar with some of the newer tools, what kind of reactions are you seeing around um, acceptance um, and around you know, their willingness to uh, push back on that design or maybe feel that that design's already kind of complete and already sailed? And they, and, or do they still feel that um, it's, it's still very malleable and you can go back and make changes? I think it's a little of both. I think generally it helps to put a lot of polish if we're trying to uh, sell a concept or an idea and get get traction, especially if we're trying to get some, you know, make sure that some work gets completed or make sure it gets prioritized. So it does go both ways, though, because it can look fairly polished. But I think our our um, we have so much expertise in in-house that we our product managers are really good about, you know, looking at something and evaluating it pretty objectively um, and making sure that it, you know, supports what's needed. But I think, you know, the, as a designer, it can be very challenging because, you know, when, when you put something together and it looks so finished and polished, uh, I think a lot of folks overlook some of the little minor details mm -hmm. and you sometimes have to go back. At least I've found that sometimes I'll have to figure out all the details later. Uh, and especially because we're trying to avoid, um, doing a lot of heavy documentation. We're trying to stay pretty lightweight and have it be more of a kind of a back and forth between the engineering team or the developer and the designer. But a lot of times um, people will think, you know, that a design is completely finished where it's really, there's still a lot of stuff to figure out, like a lot of edge cases. Yeah. So again, that just goes back to having good communication and making sure that everyone understands that where you are in the process and what types of feedback are important at that particular step. Yeah, exactly. And I think we need to do a better job, too, of documenting requirements and using the tools like that we'll have uh, in place like Jira to make sure that we are identifying all of the user stories and epics 
and identifying at what point that design will be delivered. So I think it really will require being pretty much in lockstep with those processes once we once we get that all in place. Yep, makes total sense. Well, um, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing a little bit about how things are working for you and, and the, the types of, of things you see evolving. And really, it's interesting uh, about how you approach such a sensitive and um, deep and difficult topic like security and still build a product that people can enjoy using. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today and, and uh, talking about that a little bit. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, sure. So if someone wanted to reach out and get in touch with you or um, learn more about your process or whatever, what's the best way to, to reach out and get in touch with you? Uh, probably on uh, my LinkedIn. So uh, Laura Thielen, my last name is T-H-E-L-E-N, uh, and I'm on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, we'll link that up in the show notes, too, so people can find you there, and, and uh, hopefully some good conversations will come of it. Well, Laura, thanks again. Um, Look forward to maybe having you on the show again in the future, and uh, best of luck and continued success. Sure. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.